why do you go to church? Like, why are you here today? And I, and I don't, I don't want to give you examples of that because I don't want to influence your answer, but I, I really actually want you to take some time right now to think about why you go to church. And it might be a little bit awkward because I'm going to let it be silent so you can think. Got it? Know why you go to church? Ma'am, why do you go to church? I'm kidding. You don't have to answer. Don't, don't. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, but uh, I want you to keep that, that in your mind as, as we kind of work through what we're going to talk about today. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at what we as a community, as a church, say about God to those who are watching to those who find themselves on the outside and, and they're kind of looking in, trying to figure out what this all is, what this all means. And so today I, I want to wrap up this series by going back and looking at the very first church, the, the church right at its formation, right after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And I think what we're going to see is that the church displayed a lot of the things that we've already talked about, that Kaylee has walked us through these past two weeks. But we're going to look together at Acts 2. If you don't have their Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. We're in Acts 2, and I'm going to start reading in the, in the 42nd verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." This is God's word. Now, what we just read took pl place right after the very first sermon, the first sermon that was delivered by the apostle Peter. And we're told that after he delivered that sermon, 3,000 people believed. Now, I was talking to God this week, and, and I told him, I, I don't want to be jealous, but come on, man. Um, I, I read Peter's sermon. You can all read Peter's sermon. It's, it's at the beginning of Acts 2. And, and y'all, it's just okay. I mean, it's just an okay sermon. Um, it's not really that profound. It's not really that practical. And it's definitely not funny. And, and so I said, come on, God, throw a brother a bone. But God did something spectacular through that first sermon. Through that first sermon, the church was born. And that church was built not on programs or on personality, but on people. And that got me thinking this week. It got me thinking, like, as a church, would those who are looking in say that we're a place that's built on people? I mean, we do programs pretty well here, right? Um, but, but when people look at us, at Summit Church, would they say this is a place that's built on people? Because those who, who watched the first church, those who watched the church at its very beginning knew that it was all about people. And not just individual people, but people being together. The first church was characterized by togetherness. Did you hear how many times in that short passage we read that the word together came up? In verse 44, it says, all the believers were together. Verse 46, they met together and they ate together. There's a lot of togetherness. 
You could not characterize the first church any other way because those who were the church were always together. They were either in the temples together or they were in each other's homes together. They were always together. In fact, it says they were together every day. These first Christians were together every single day. They couldn't get enough of each other. And they saw regular life as an interruption to them being together. See, they were characterized by togetherness, not just because it was something they did, but it was because it was something they now were. They were together. Now, I think we like to be together, right? I think like as a, as a, as a community, we like to be together. But when I, when I read this first church, their kind of togetherness seems a little bit different. And before, um, b- before we, we go too far down this trail, um, I, I know that this is a place where maybe in past church experiences, um, someone has, has said to you, a preacher has said, like, you should feel guilty that you're not here more often. Like, why aren't you here every week? And, and your, your attendance is important. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. And, and I know everyone's been at a Christmas Eve service, right, where the pastor said something at the end of the service, like, it was great having you see you at Easter unless Satan sees you first, you know, like something like that. Um, but that's, that's, not, that's not the point because the point would not be to say, all right, Listen, the first church was together all the time, so we should be together all the time. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, the apostles never say anything like that. The apostles never say like, hey, everyone needs to come together because they didn't have to. They just, they just were together. The people wanted to be together. They were hungry to be together. Why? Why did they go to church? Now, before we start beating ourselves up, uh, I want to say it didn't take very long uh, for the church to move away from this crazy togetherness. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, which was written probably 40, maybe 50 years after the church started, so one generation later, Christians needed to be encouraged to come together. In Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this, "...and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds." not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So if we find ourselves lacking the desire for the kind of togetherness that characterized the first Christians, maybe our solution is to look at and engage or maybe re-engage what the first church was. So that's what I want us to do. We're gonna look at who came together in the first church, what they did when they came together, and then why they came together. Who, what, why. So we just, we just had our fifth child, um, and I, I, I brought a picture, of course, um, and there, there he is. There's Huck. Um, Huck uh, was born a little uh, less than two weeks ago, um, and one of the things that you worry about or at least I worry about when you, when you have a, a new child, is, is does this mean that you'll know your other kids less? Is because I will have less time individually with my other kids, will this mean I miss knowing them more deeply? But what I found uh, is that it's just the opposite. I know my other children, uh, and my wife for that matter, more deeply with each new addition to our family. Because each new addition to our family brings out something in each of us that was previously unknown or unseen. 
So I, I brought a picture of uh, uh, the kids meeting Huck for the first time. There he is. Uh, that's like moments after he was born. Um, and actually, Alice was in there during the delivery, and she announced promptly after the delivery that she no longer wants to be a baby doctor. Uh, but, uh, but there we are. There, everyone, everyone's meeting baby Huck for the first time. And I can tell you, there are things about my oldest Oliver that I didn't know before Huck became part of our family. There are things that I'm going to know about Oliver that only his relationship with Huck will bring out. Now, our youngest is not in this picture. Uh, her name's Prin, and she's about a year and a half. And she met uh, Huck uh, by herself. And I brought a picture of that first meeting. There they are. Um, and... and and I, I know you're, you're looking at that and you're saying, oh man, she does not like that she's not the baby anymore. Uh, but it's actually, that's not the case. Um, as you can see, there's a passy in my wife's hand right there. I have learned something new about Prin that I never knew about her. And that is that she is extremely bossy. And she knows when, when Huck needs his uh, passy, when he needs his diaper change. When people come to visit, she determines how long they can hold him and if they can even hold them. So there's this whole part of Pren, there's this whole part of her personality that I did not know about until her baby brother showed up. But not only can we be known more fully individually because of Huck, but our family as a whole can be known more fully. The same is for our church family. Each new member brings out something in us both individually and corporately that prior to was unknown or unseen. I love this about church. And in fact, I love that the, the way the church started and now when, when God came to Abraham in the Old Testament and he said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a, a huge nation and from your descendants, every other nation in the world will be blessed. He, he built something through a family, through, through people that had the same DNA. But when, when the church was started, it didn't start like that. The church started, uh, it didn't subtly introduce new people into it. It exploded with new people. It exploded with kinds of people that you wouldn't expect. Now, when Peter preached this first sermon in Jerusalem, this was at a time, and Kaylee talked about this last week a little bit, this was at a time when there were people from all over the place gathering in Jerusalem. So there were people uh, who heard the gospel that lived in, in you know, the far parts of Egypt or Africa. There were, there were Romans and there were uh, Jews and there were, um, uh, you know, just all kinds of people. In fact, in, in Acts 2.5, it says that there were people from every, um, every nation under heaven. So it's this crazy, diverse group of people in which the church was birthed. These people got together who had nothing in common. They didn't even have a common language. And yet immediately we're told in Acts 2, verse 42, that they were in each other's homes all the time. That they could not get enough of each other. Now let's think about this in our, in our current context. Wouldn't a community like this be so attractive right now? A community where there are people who have, who have really nothing in common on the outside and all of a sudden you see them and they just can't get enough of each other. They love being together. I hate how divided our country is right now. It just feels so divisive. I mean, it feels we feel divided by race and by class and by political party. 
In Obama's last um, State of the Union speech, at the very end of the speech, he talked about how the, the thing that he's sad about in his presidency is that the nation is more divided than when he came into office. Uh, and, he, and he said, that wasn't my intention. And of course it wasn't his intention because that's what he peddled us when, when he ran for president, right? He said he was going to unite us. And I'm, and I'm not blaming him for our, our lack of unity because it's not his fault. We all have played a part in that. But, but what he had told us he wanted to do, what he was hoping to do is an almost impossible task. To take uh, diversity and, and create a togetherness, that's hard. That's what Kaylee was talking about last week when, when she talked about us being an inviting place. If we're to be an inviting place, that's difficult because that means we're going to have to live in tension with people who think and act and believe differently than us. And to be an inviting community means it's not just that we're welcoming, that it's just safe for you to come here, but, but to be an inviting community says we want you here. This is so difficult, but y'all, it happened. Historically, it happened. In Acts 2, we see it happen. What Obama promised us and what we all longed for actually happened in history. People far more divided than us came together. They were in each other's homes. They couldn't get enough of each other. And, and, and those who are watching this happen discovered something about God that was true. So if, if you and I, if we find ourselves without the zeal of those first Christians, that desire for a togetherness, then maybe we, we've surrounded ourselves with people who are too much like us. Because that's not where the church thrives. The church was born out of diversity, not out of sameness. So maybe what those who are watching found attractive about the early church is the same thing that, that you and I, those of us who have been in the church for a long time, it's the same thing we need to see and take part of in order to have that rekindled zeal for getting together. See, there are parts of us and there are parts of others that are still unknown and unseen because every member of our family isn't here yet. And you know those people. They're your neighbor and they're your coworker. Maybe they're your mom or your dad. I'm listening right now to Dick Van Dyke's autobiography uh, because I love Dick Van Dyke. And, and I think I've told you all before when I was a kid, I used to tell people he was my uncle. Uh, and so anyways, I'm listening to his uh, autobiography and, and it's, it's fascinating. He had a fascinating life. And when he was a teenager, he wanted to be a, a preacher. Uh, and, and throughout um, most of his adult life, he taught Sunday school. He was also an elder for a long time at a Presbyterian church in L.A. This was all while he was doing the Dick Van Dyke show and Mary Poppins. But I just got to this part in his story where, where he starts talking about the civil rights movement. And, um, and he was an elder at the time at his church. And, and some, one of the elders had proposed this um, uh, idea that, that they should invite the, the black church that was kind of down the street to come and, and take part in their worship service and then in hopes that, that maybe they'd be invited into the, into the black church to participate in their worship service. And a few of the elders lost it and said, there's no way, we're not doing that. And, uh, and, and it, it, it disrupted Dick Van Dyke so much that, that he, he let them know what he thought about it and then he said he walked out never to return again never to return not only to that church, but to any church ever again. Now, he was right to be disgusted. 
and maybe even right to leave that church. But what made me so sad was that he left the church altogether. Because you see, the church God had in mind when he thought up church, the church as it, as it first started actually looked like the kind of church that Dick Van Dyke hoped for. Church was never intended to be a place full of people with the same prejudices as us. My favorite type of guest on the um, radio show I do with Steve Brown uh, is when we have on a, a liberal uh, because Steve is, is highly conservative. Um, he says he's to the right of Genghis Khan. And, and so I love when we have a liberal as the, as the guest on the show because I get to sit there before we're on air and watch him just get all riled up and crouchy. And, and, and it's really kind of fun to watch because as soon as the show starts happening, it's great. In fact, it's, it's some of the best shows. They're so much better than when we have someone who agrees with him on everything. And one of my favorite guests we ever had was Anne Lamont. If you don't know who Anne Lamont is, she's an incredible writer. But if you lean conservative, when you read her, she's going to really mess you up. Uh, and she's about as polar opposite of Steve Brown as you can get. Um, and, and it was a great show. And I don't think we laughed more on any other show than on that show. And they talked about some hard stuff and they disagreed passionately. But I'll never forget how the show ended. Anne said to Steve, she said, you know what I can't wait for, Steve? Heaven. Because then for all eternity, you and I can sit next to each other and hold hands and laugh and talk about Jesus. Do you have people who the gospel has brought you into close connection with that before you would have had nothing to do with. If you find yourself not longing for that kind of togetherness that we see in the early church, maybe you just need to find a new friend who doesn't agree with you on anything but Jesus. Maybe that's what will spark that zeal. And I'll tell you, to those watching to those on the outside looking in, especially at this time in our history, especially during this election, if we can display that kind of love for one another, that will be attractive. So we've talked about who came together, everyone. Every type of person came together. Every type of person was, was there at the start of the church. So now what did they do when they came together? Now, this will be fleshed out um, over the next several weeks in a series that Jim's going to be starting. But I want to go through this list because I think in this list, we will, we will also have some, some next steps. That, it, that if we're finding our, our, our zeal for church, our zeal to get together, it's just kind of take it or leave it. Like maybe if we re-engage these things, it will help spark that again in us. And these were the things that they did all the time. They did it in their homes. They did it when they met in the temple. It's verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Essentially, they, they did what we encourage people in connect groups to do. They learned together, they served together, and they worshiped together. So first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Everything was built around studying God's word, talking about it, debating it, applying it. And this doesn't mean they always agreed with each other, but they kept coming to it because they lived in a world that was bombarding them with all kinds of different messages. They didn't know what was, what was true and what was not true, but they knew if they got around God's word with other people and they wrestled through what it said, that eventually they would be able to hear truth. 
So, so maybe if you find your desire uh, for togetherness lacking, when, when was the last time you got around uh, with a group of, of Christians and just talked about God's word? When was the last time you did that? Maybe that's what will fuel that zeal. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship, which is a very churchy word. Um, uh, but as you see it lived out in, in this passage, you see that fellowship is really about relationships that aren't self-serving, but that serve others. Fellowship is about relationships built on serving one another. They served each other through fellowship. They bore each other's burdens. They were honest about themselves and their struggles. And why? Because the gospel had freed them. All of a sudden, they, they had this message, this message that Peter gave them that said, hey, your identity no longer rests on how you perform. All, all the things that the world tells you, all the things that, that are required of you to be seen as successful in the world, that doesn't matter anymore. You have a new identity. You can tell the truth about yourself. We say here often, your story told truthfully is good news for others. See, they were, they were in fellowship with one another, which meant they could, like Kaylee said the very first week of this series, they could tell the worst about themselves knowing that it would show the best about who God is. So if you lack the zeal for, for, for togetherness, when was the last time you shared your story? When was the last time you told the truth about yourself? I know I, I start getting antsy if, if I find myself kind of in, in a situation where I haven't been truthful, when I haven't been telling my story to others, that, that my, my, my impulse is to kind of pull away, not to move closer. So if you, if you feel like you've kind of been pulling away, you need to tell. You need to tell your story. And maybe you need to tell your story to, to someone who, who doesn't believe. We teach a Reconstructing Evangelism class, which starts next week in Lake Marion, and that's what we do. We talk about how do we engage in telling our story so that it's good news for those who hear it. So maybe that's, maybe that's what you need to kind of kickstart that zeal again. But it wasn't just about meeting spiritual and emotional needs. They also served through meeting each other's physical needs and the needs of the people around them. See, their togetherness spurred on a kind of generosity that spilled over outside the walls of their church into their community. It, it said they found favor with all people. When was the last time the church found favor with all people? They were generous. Verse 45, it says, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. So maybe if, if you're sitting there and you're lacking the desire to be together, you just need to jump in and start serving. I mean, base camp always needs people. First impressions, you can hand out bulletins. We have nice serve coming up. Maybe, maybe it's serving will bring about that thing that the early church had. And lastly, they worship together. The breaking of bread and of prayer. The breaking of bread is not talking about eating a meal, but, but it's talking about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They engage together in liturgy a liturgy that reminded them of the truth. When was the last time you were reminded that the Son of God was broken for you, and not just for you, but for others? I love serving communion. I love when we take communion here, because not only are we receiving it individually, but, and I encourage you, we're gonna do, we're gonna take communion later. Like, I encourage you to look around the room. It's not just about Jesus being broken for you, it's about Jesus being broken for us. There's something so beautiful about looking around and seeing all these people that Jesus died for. 
So there was always learning, there was always serving, and there was always worshiping. And if, if we find ourselves lacking this zeal that the first church had, maybe we're missing some of these elements. Maybe we aren't engaging in these elements. Maybe we aren't engaging in learning from God's word. Maybe we aren't serving the emotional and spiritual and physical needs of others. Maybe we're kind of lackadaisical about our participation in worship. But as they did these things, we're told God added to their number daily. Their church continued to explode. People watched this community form and they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be a part of it because they had never seen a community before where everyone was invited, where it didn't matter what culture you came from. It didn't matter where, where your family was from. It didn't matter even your past sins. They'd never seen a community that the only requirement for entry was just need or really even just curiosity. They wanted to be a part of a community because they saw a community live in a way that was so counter to everything else they were seeing in their world. It was so counter to kind of the selfishness that was surrounding them. These people were humble and generous in ways that didn't make sense. But I think what was most intriguing to those on the outside who were watching was why they came together. Because they were in awe. Did you, did you see it said they, they, they were all together and they were in awe. And they were praising God from a sincere and glad heart. Something had happened to them. When Peter preached his first sermon, we're told that the people who were listening were cut to the heart. They were cut deeply. And then the people looked at Peter and they said, okay, what do we do now? Now that our heart's open, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. See, the people who were watching the church form saw people who were in awe and they wanted it because that's what we've been designed for. We've been designed to be people in awe. That's why it's so devastating when you're a kid and, and you realize for the first time, I got to be careful. I, mean, I was going to say something about a mythical person that I don't need to talk about. Um, uh, it's like when, uh, when for the first time, I almost ruined kids. Uh, if you're in here, kids, I'm sorry. Um, it's like when you're a kid and, uh, and, and you realize that you're not Superman. When you realize that, that you can't really fly, that you'll never be able to fly. But there's something inside you that is designed to have awe. We were designed as worshipers. Everything we do somehow, in some way, expresses our worship of something. And when the people on the outside looked into these, these people that had formed this community, they saw people who seemed to have found something that satisfied, that freed them from, from all the other things uh, that the world was telling them they had to do and be. They discovered a group of people who knew that every thought and breath and word and deed was to be shaped by the worship of God, by praising God, by giving, by being in awe of God. See, awe of God is meant to keep us safe and to keep us humble and to keep us seeking grace, which we need on a daily basis to convince us to live for something bigger than ourselves. Awe is the thing that's, that's supposed to get us up in the morning and help us find rest at night. Awe is, is meant to remind us that our hope is not found in what we do or what we possess, but in a God who loves us enough to be broken for us. 
I'm always, uh, because I was a youth pastor for so long, uh, I'm always sad when I, when I look out and I see a teenager kind of sitting there slumped over and I can just see on his face like that he, he does not believe that there's anything awe, awe-inspiring, awesome that he's going to experience in this place. It makes me sad because at 16, he's already lost the one thing that will give him life and life abundantly, and that is awe of God. Now, I'm sad when I see anybody, no matter their age, look like that, but there's something especially sad when it's a young person growing up in the church and they're missing it. And I think a lot of times the reason they're missing it is because we're missing it. Do you have awe in your heart for God? If you don't, if I don't, then there's no way we can pass it on to our children and there's no way that those who are on the outside looking in will see it. So if we've lost our awe for God, what should we do? What's our response? How do we get it back? Togetherness. Going back to Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, I'm going to read it again. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Lost our awe of God, our response is we got to come together. We got to pursue a friendship with someone who the only thing we have in common with them is Jesus so that we can get a glimpse of just how big and pervasive the kingdom of God is. We have to come together and study God's word, learn together, serve together, worship together. We have to stand in awe and praise God together. C.S. Lewis had a very interesting thing to say about aesthetics. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. C.S. Lewis is telling us why when we hear a song that we really like or when we see a piece of art that takes our breath away or when we watch a YouTube video that makes us laugh out loud that we immediately call someone over and say, hey, you got to see this. You got to look at this. You got to listen to this. See, we complete our joy when we praise the object that has brought us joy. Our joy is incomplete until we talk about it together. That's why it's important that we get together. That's why we have to get together. We have to come together and say, look at this. The reason I do this is because I see beauty and I want you to see it. The same reason you hold your iPhone up to someone and say, listen to this. I'm going to tell you a story about someone uh, who's part of our uh, campus at the 33rd Street Jail. And I didn't get permission to tell this story. And so I'm going to call her Cheryl. Um, That's not her name. But Cheryl's been in 33rd for a while, longer than most, uh, awaiting trial. And, and just recently, she was sent to the court only to find out that she would not be appearing before the court that day. The bailiff who, who was working has gotten to know her, and, and he, he told her he's been praying for her, and, and he's sorry that, that, that her court date has been postponed. He knows uh, how frustrating the waiting can be. 
And on the, the bus ride back to 33rd, she was sitting uh, with the other female inmates, and, and there's a part of the, the bus that has kind of a metal uh, kind of cage uh, to kind of separate the women from the men, and there was just one man uh, riding on the bus as well. And Cheryl said she, she looked at the man, and, and, he, and he looked dark, and he looked angry, and his eyes she described as being just completely red. And so she asked one of the other female inmates if they, would, if they could trade seats because she wanted to talk to this man. And, uh, and she uh, asked the man uh, what he was in for and, and what he had been at court about, and, uh, and he immediately began to cuss her out. That didn't stop her. She kept talking to him, and, and she asked him if, if she could pray for him. And, and he said, I don't, I don't believe in God. At which she responded, I don't believe that. Which is an interesting evangelistic tactic, right? Like, I don't believe in God. Nope. Not, no, you know what I mean? Like I, but, but that's what she did. Um, and, and she looked at him and she said, no, you had to have known God at some point to have a cross tattooed on your face. And the man said, no, I don't believe in God. And if you knew my story, you couldn't handle it. Actually, nobody can handle my story. And she said, okay, try me. And he did. He started telling her a, a pretty horrific story, a story that would make your stomach uh, churn and, and sick if you, if you heard the details of it. This man had done some horrible things. And when he got done telling the story, and, and I, I can't help but, I don't know, but I can't help but imagine that that's probably the first time he's ever really told a story. And when he got done telling his story, Cheryl looked at the man directly in the face through the, uh, through the barrier, and she said, God loves you. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. I don't believe in God because I can't believe that a God would make me, would create me the way I am. And she looked at him and she said, God made you, created you good, but evil has got a hold of you. And if you'll let me, I want to pray for you. And he let her. And then he asked her if he could pray for her. Wow, look at that, right? You got to hear this story. Thank you, Cheryl. You, you know who you are. Your name's not Cheryl, but thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for, for, for being so in awe of God that a barrier that seemed impenetrable didn't stop you. Cheryl, Cheryl obviously looks at Jesus and sees him being broken for her, and she knows that if he's broken for her, then he's broken for others, including this man. I imagine that this man, most of his life, has stood on the outside of church and looked in and observed, and whatever he heard or saw told him, you cannot be a part of God's family. But Cheryl told him the truth. That's why we come to church. We come to church to hear those kind of stories, to tell those kind of stories, to be a part of those kind of stories, stories that can only happen because we come together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, right now for Cheryl. I thank you that she is part of our family. I thank you that what she brings to our family says something so true and beautiful about you. And Father, each of us do. Each of us brings something that if we weren't here, that part of who you are would not be displayed.
So, Father, I pray that you would call each of us, whatever next step we need to take. If we are here and we just are standing on the periphery and we don't have that zeal, Father, I pray that, that we would not feel guilty, but that you would invite us into a kind of togetherness that gives us life so that those on the outside looking in will see something true about who you are. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.